is not the plan. I had been having a wonderful dinner with the Westlands. And if you don't know the Westlands, Dan and Jesse, they are awesome people. You need to get to know them. They love pouring themselves out for young people. Dan was up here teaching a couple weeks back. So I'm having a nice dinner with them, and I just start to itch everywhere. And, you know, I tried to play it cool for as long as I could. (laughs) And then I finally had to excuse myself to go to the bathroom, (laughs) get in, lift up my shirt, and there are hives everywhere. So real quickly, we decided, like, it's time to go in. And so there's a picture of me up here in the ER. And thankfully, two hours later, I was out of there. I had a prescription in hand, and I thought the IV had done its trick. So naively, I thought, well, it's all over with. 4 a.m., the hives come back with a vengeance, and it was 48 hours of just miserable And I didn't know what was causing it, so I started to, you know, need to figure out what am I going to do for the mission trip. And I had everyone praying, my family, the staff. I had this awesome time of prayer sitting in the Meyer parking lot with Michelle Swinney over the phone, just praying for me. And it was awesome. So everyone's praying, and it was great, but it wasn't great. And we left for the airport early Saturday morning. I'd not slept at all. And you know that moment when you're a student pastor and you want to try to inspire confidence in all those parents, you know, because you're taking their minors to a foreign country. And really all I had for them was, well, see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) The swelling got so bad during our layover in Atlanta that we started planning a visit to the hospital for when we landed in the DR. You know it's bad when you're walking down the middle aisle of the plane, like back to the bathroom, and all the students are giving you this look. Like, (laughs) no. So by God's grace, it was getting better by the time we landed. Didn't go to the hospital then. And what was really neat is by the end of the worship service in the Dominican on Sunday morning, the hives were gone, and they never came back. Which was awesome, exactly. That was an answer to prayer. But it was good because two hours later, we were on our way to the hospital for something else. Krista Nussbaum had been giving a little kid a piggyback ride, and she accidentally fell, and she landed on rebar. So let's just say none of us had ever seen anything like that. I was calling it a cut, and it's really more like a gaping wound. But Krista was awesome. We got to have sweet times of prayer together, called mom and dad, brought in a special surgeon, and after five hours, with very little English, we were allowed to leave. On our way back, we asked the missionaries we were with, like, what's the worst injury you guys have ever seen? And they're like, this one. (laughs) Our team is nothing if not memorable, which we then cemented And solidified on Friday when we took our second trip to the hospital, this time with Mason Culver. The poor guy had caused a sink to collapse, and so he tried to catch himself, I think, on it, which gave a nice big gash on his hand. By then, this was old hat. Pile in the car, learn more about Dominican health care, call home, get more stitches. It was great. But in all seriousness, and you can throw up the pic of our team from Friday night. In all seriousness, it truly was an incredible, spirit-filled, 
wonderful snapshot of the global church sort of week. And you're going to get to hear more about it this morning. So today we are wrapping up our Summer Stories series. And I was real torn on what to pick. I decided to go Old Testament, which feels real risky since I have to follow Julia, the one who has her MA in Old Testament and whose favorite book of the Bible is Deuteronomy. Come on. (laughs) But I decided to go for it. So this morning we're in the book of Judges. And Judges were the leaders of Israel between Joshua and then the first three kings of united Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And when we think of Judges, we're not thinking of people who walk around and judge other people, because those are called jerks. And then we're also not talking about the likes of Judge Judy or Supreme Court nominees. And conveniently, God provides a synopsis of this period in Judges 2, 10 through 19. And there's this recurring cycle that you can look at up here. It goes like this. Israel uh, doesn't do what God wants them to do. God gives them into the hands of oppressors. Israel cries out to God. God raises up a deliverer or a judge. The oppressor is subdued. And then the land or people have rest for X amount of years. Some judges have name recognition, like Deborah or Samson. Then there are judges like Othniel and Tola that might be less familiar. Today is the story of Ehud. And if you do know his story already, great. Congrats on being a Sunday school success story. But if you are a little more normal, you don't know this story. And that gets me excited. So our text, if you'd like to turn there with me, is Judges 3, 12 through 30. And like Julia mentioned last week, a lot of Old Testament is narrative. And to truly understand narrative, you have to just read the whole thing, otherwise it gets confusing. So, for your listening pleasure, we're going to read Judges 3, 12 through 30. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. The fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung 
came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. (laughs) This is amazing. (laughs) This is a student pastor's dream, an opportunity in a sermon to talk about an epic battle, a king getting stabbed, and poop. (laughs) The Bible talks a lot about how Christians should have joy. Well, this story brings me great joy. (laughs) But it is tough. Not terribly tough to understand, but tough to apply. And in Bible school, we were taught the OIA method, observe, interpret, apply, right? Observe the text, interpret the text, and apply the text. So as great as this story is, my heart this morning truly is for all of us to have a very strong and clear impression of what in the world does this mean for us? What does God have for us this morning? So towards that end, let's pray, and then we will dive in. God, you are sovereign, And your word is true. And Lord, this is not just a story. This is something that happened. And you have something for us this morning. So Lord, as we continue this corporate act of worship this morning, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would make it clear. Lord, we invite you and we invite the Holy Spirit to show us how this can transform us more into the likeness of your son. Help it, help it not to be just an exercise of the mind or even just an exercise of the heart, but something that is truly transformative. And so we lay it all before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, or another way of saying it is just that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds kind of familiar. And the Lord gives Moab power of Israel. So God, not Moab, is in control here, and he is choosing to discipline his people through Eglon. Eglon takes possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. So if you remember, not too long before, the Israelites had overcome Jericho under Joshua. So this probably didn't feel great. Israel is subject for 18 years So if you're one of our high school seniors that just graduated, 
Imagine being oppressed for your entire lifespan. That was Israel's experience. In verse 15, Israel cries out in repentance, finally. And even then, it's described more as kind of like a cry of desperation. It's possible some of them still didn't see their role in all of this, but they were just desperate. The Lord raises up a deliverer, choosing to remove the discipline. And that's when we meet Ehud. He's left-handed. This is only one of three times in the Old Testament that left-handedness is mentioned. So for all you lefties out there, and I want to hear you. There we go. Oh, that's a lot. That's awesome. Guys, this story is for you. Like This is for you. <laughs> this left-handed guy, Ehud, has been sent with tribute, money, food, wool, and his for King Eglon. Now, I don't know a lot about combat, but Ehud's sword being on his right side, that kind of stands out to me, right? Most people keep their swords and sheaths on the left so that the right hand can grab it, but not Ehud because he's left-handed. So this sword is hidden under Ehud's clothes on his right side. Caravan gets there. They present the tribute. And the author of Judge tells us something specifically that King Eglon is very fat, so he must have been large. But side note, because this is brilliant, his name means little calf. Sometimes calves get butchered. So we call this ironic foreshadowing. It's good. Ehud leaves, turns back, but he stops alone near these idols at Gilgal. Or I should say, it's called stones. And it's unclear exactly what these stones were. It seems like there's one of two options. Either these were stones that Israel had actually laid down themselves to remember what Yahweh had done in the past, or they were truly pagan idols. Either way, it's significant, because if they were stones, perhaps that's what God used to get Ehud's attention, to prompt him with this secret message. Or perhaps if they were pagan idols, maybe Ehud thought that he could play into Eglon's ego. That, of course, the idols must have a secret message for him. The king calls for silence. His servants exit the room. Ehud comes in, says he has a message from God. So Eglon stands. And at that moment, Ehud takes the sword from his right thigh with his left hand and thrusts it into his belly. Now, how in the world did an enemy of Moab get before the king alone with a weapon? Certainly there were protocols in place, but the soldiers missed it because they weren't looking in the right place. No one keeps their sword on the right. This is awkward. That's a weird sound effect. That's good. No one does that. It's weird. And it's more proof that God is in control and sovereign over everything happening. And let's reread verse 22, shall we? The hilt also went in after the blade. The fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I love it. <laughs> like, 
it's memorable, it's descriptive. Like his bowels came out. I read somewhere this week that his sphincter exploded. It's a word I never thought I could say in church. I can say it. (laughs) But these details aren't randomly inserted just to gross us out. These details are crucial because they point to how God is orchestrating Ehud's escape. The guards were sitting outside for a long time, and they thought they were being respectful of the king's potty break. For real. And why would they think that? Because it smells like poop. When they felt they couldn't wait anymore, they enter, find the body, but Ehud, he is in the wind. He had plenty of time to get away while they thought that Eglon was going number two. That's my last potty joke, by the way. Use that one. Exhausted it. (laughs) Our story then wraps up, right? Ehud sounds the trumpet. Israel meets him. And under the lead of the Lord, they seize land, kill 10,000, subdue Moab for the next 80 years. Which is really cool because that's actually the longest period of freedom for Israel during about the 400-year time of the judges. So there are so many questions that I think we could have of this story. One, why does God even allow discipline through pagan people? Why were certain details included? What were those stones exactly? Does God approve of what Ehud did? And perhaps most importantly, what in the world does this mean for us? A lot of the themes... And judges are the same as from the time of the prophets. That the Lord is our God. That he is sovereign. That it doesn't go well for people when they serve two masters. So we've observed, we've interpreted, and now we have to apply. You can't exactly teach, be like Ehud. Could get misconstrued. You also can't say things like, maybe Ehud's sword is like the word of God, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. No. Mm -mm. So this story, though, is in the canon for a reason. It's going to build up the church. So these are my thoughts from our final summer story. Thought number one, God is our heavenly Father, so watch for his discipline And repent. Big picture, we see the Lord disciplining his people over and over again as they return to sin. Not random punishments, but discipline tied to Israel's direct refusal to obey the Lord. And because God is our Heavenly Father, he cares about how we live. Now, the Lord gave Israel over to Moab for 18 years. That means they didn't get it for 17 They didn't see it for what it was, discipline that should lead to repentance. And I don't think they saw it because they weren't watching for it. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Hebrews 12.5-6, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. When I see the discipline of our Heavenly Father in my own life, I don't love it. It's not fun. It is often painful. It's frustrating. But ultimately, I'm grateful. I watch for it now. It's one of the ways I see how much God loves me, that he would care enough to intervene and to grab my attention. When I see God disciplining me, there's a small part of me that's relieved because I'm like, yes, God is here. He cares, and I'm his. If you're a parent, you have good insight into this. You don't discipline your child to get back at them or to make them suffer at least not most of the time. (laughs) You discipline out of love. Don't hurt yourself. Learn this lesson before it's too late. Change your behavior. You know, there are times where sometimes I feel like a parent. (laughs) Thankfully, it's temporary. (laughs) When we were in the DR, as leaders, we would have to discipline, correct, even rebuke sometimes a student. And since we're broken people ourselves, we don't always do it perfectly. But the reason we do it is because we love our students and we want what is best for them. The purpose of discipline is repentance. And Israel wasn't great at this. I don't think we're especially great at this. But when we watch for the Lord's discipline, we're more likely to respond by running away from sin. That's what repentance is. It's that 180 degree turn saying, this was the direction I was going, this is wrong, I'm going to turn and now run the other way. And repentance isn't temporary. It is a new alignment that is ongoing. Perhaps if Israel had watched, they would have spared themselves some pain, and maybe even yielded what's described in Hebrews 12, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is our heavenly Father, so watch for his discipline and repent. Thought number two, God is in the business of freeing his people, so ask yourself, am I free? Sin always brings bondage. Always. God always brings freedom. Always. I know what it is to be in bondage, and I know what it is to be free. And I love these stories from Judges because they reveal how God will long for his people to be free. He goes to great lengths to make them free, even when the people are getting in the way. 80 years of freedom. That's what Ehud's leadership ushered in. 80 years. And it could have been even longer if the people had continued to walk with the Lord. Are you free? I think when we read these stories, we have to ask ourselves, which part of the story do we relate to? Do we relate to the 80 years of freedom? Or do we relate to the 18 years of bondage. Israel had a special relationship with the Lord, 
But the people of God, this side of the new covenant, like we have it even better. Christ incarnate and our helper, the Holy Spirit. John 8, 3. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. A mark of Eagle Church must be freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And it happens as we respond to our Heavenly Father's discipline with repentance. Now, Israel needed a type of literal freedom from oppressors, but they also needed the same sort of freedom that we need today. Freedom from fear of man. Freedom from addiction. Freedom from tolerated sin habits. Gossip, slander, lying. Freedom from the love of money and wealth. It's possible, and I speak only for myself, that we can think we're living in freedom, but we actually aren't. We've got blinders on and we're too comfortable. And God knows better than to reveal everything to us all at once because I just don't think we could handle it. But God is in the business of freeing his people. Why do students experience greater freedom at things like Ignite Camp and on mission trips? You know, I didn't hear many students come back from the DR and say like, that was fun. (laughs) It wasn't fun. There were fun moments, but what you heard over and over again as students came back was that was the hardest but best week of my life. And a big part of that in those settings is a student experiencing greater freedom as God intends, right? Freedom that comes from obedience to the Great Commission, Freedom that comes from starting every day in community and in prayer and in Bible reading. And I love this. Freedom not only from things, but freedom to and for things. Freedom to love. Freedom for holy living. Freedom to take risks. Thought number three. God can use one person... So be ready and willing. Hopefully that sounds familiar because at the beginning of July, Justin taught on Philip from Acts 8 and described Philip as available and willing. So here it is again, consistent themes in Scripture. God can use one person who is ready and willing. Ehud was not terrible, but he also wasn't great. The judge right before him, Othniel, he's described as having the spirit of the Lord on him. Nothing like that is said of Ehud. It's absent. He was cunning. He was violent. And just because this story is in the Bible doesn't mean God literally approved of Ehud's actions. He used them, but we can't assume permission. But Ehud does show what it looks like to be ready. Maybe consider what he would have had to do to be a part of leading this tribute envoy. You know, preparation, leadership, consistency. 
He was in that position of readiness. And we don't know exactly what those idols were near Gilgal. But clearly, he made a choice then and there that he was willing to assassinate a pagan king that was oppressing his people. He was also willing to give God the glory as he ascribed credit to the Lord and led the people to victory. God can use anyone. You know, you think you're too ordinary? Ehud was ordinary. You think that you're too messed up? The Bible is full of messed up people, and it only takes one. Under one guy's leadership, they overcame 10,000. God can also use your left-handedness. Ehud was different from other folks. He may have even spent a lot of life at a disadvantage. But when it counted, God used this uniqueness to fulfill his promise. There was a purpose for this difference in one guy. Ehud was ready and willing. So in the DR, throughout the week, we had a couple of different tasks. Each morning started out at the construction site. And what we were doing was helping lay the foundation of this building that's going to be a part of a Christian camp. They have this amazing vision for what this camp will be, hopefully in about three years' time. So, you know, we're digging ravines, we're mixing cement, you know, we're wheelbarrowing the backfill to these big holes. Ironically, we could have hurt ourselves there. None of our injuries happened there. (laughs) So that was the morning. Then in the afternoon, one of two things were happening. We were running a kids' basketball camp, and then we were doing prayer walks. Now, six months prior, the missionaries we were going to be working with set a really high bar. Like, they set expectations for what our students needed to be able to do. They said, your students must know how to share their stories. Your students must be able to share the gospel. And your students must feel comfortable praying for healing over others. And that's amazing. That's what we wanted. So we did the best that we could during our training meetings to practice to train them to make sure that they were ready. So Monday afternoon comes, about 10 students, but they split up into two groups. They're going out into the neighborhood for prayer walks. They would have an adult from us, an adult from the local church, and probably a translator. And just kind of put yourself in the shoes that our students were in. You're going door to door to talk to complete strangers, who do not speak your language. So every step of the way, you're being translated for, and then their response is being translated for. It's slow, it can be confusing, and it was daunting. So we send out 10 students that first day, and I really, like, we have been praying big prayers, but I'll admit, I did not know what to expect. And we come back, we gather, we're like, hey guys, how was the prayer, prayer walk time today? And they're like, 14 people prayed to receive Christ today. Amen, right? And we were like, praise God, that's awesome. And that was day one. Then day two comes around. And this was when I got to go with some of our students on a prayer walk. It was kids like Sam Miller, August Hubbard, Caroline Rent, and Gabe Swinney. And you guys would be so blessed and encouraged by our students' boldness. Because it's tough. It felt so intimidating But they'd be like, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm this many years old. Can I share about Jesus with you? Yes, you can. They lay out their story. They open up the word. And then at the end, 
So what, what questions do you have? Can we pray about Jesus? Our group got to pray with four more. Other groups were praying. Simultaneously, students who are helping with the basketball camp, they're sharing their story. Imagine that. There's like 50 little kids running around. <laughs> You're still being translated for. But they have a time of response. Kids are coming to Christ. So by the end of the week, 40 plus, because we don't know exactly, 40 plus people had come to accept Christ. Yeah. It's like, it was awesome. And I also do want to insert, like, we're so blessed that God, for whatever reason, chose to use us. But it was a really clear and amazing picture of how we got to come alongside people who were already doing the work. The pastora, the pastor's wife, like she had relationships with a lot of these people, had tried before, they'd rejected before, and then for whatever reason, in this moment, God chose to use us. But by no means was it just us, right? Like there were faithful servants who had been doing that for a long time. So I think about what did our students do? They were ready because they had prepared, and then they were willing so I'm challenged as an adult, like, am I ready and willing to do the same things? And I love really how simple what we did was. We were willing to talk about God. You know, just with people, talk about God with people. We were willing to pray and read the Bible every day. And during that week, that's what we were doing. And I just think, if every person in this room committed to doing that every day, like, we would be a different church. Like, that's awesome. So I'm challenged by our students' example. Am I ready and willing? So God is our Heavenly Father, so watch for His discipline and repent. God is in the business of freeing His people, so ask yourself, am I free And God can use one person, so be ready and willing. The order of those three is intentional. I don't think we hear people talk a ton about how God disciplines us as his children. And the funny thing is, not only does he do it, but he's not going to stop doing it, right? Because it's part of the Christian's lifelong journey, It's one of the ways that God transforms us more into the likeness of Jesus. Because here's what happens. We might think that we're ready and willing. We want to be ready and willing, but we skip steps. Now, this is the cool thing. Thankfully, God in his sovereignty can do whatever he wants, right, and choose to use any of us at any point in time. And that's true. But I can look at this story from Judges 3 and confidently say that a really good place to start is repentance. Repentance is always a really good place to start. So we should watch for the Lord's discipline, not not to be afraid of it or to avoid it, but to respond, to receive it as another sign of love. Then as we repent, we experience more freedom. Freedom by, like, naming our sin and returning to the cross. Freedom as blind spots are removed. Freedom to love God well and to love others well as we're kind of filled to the brim ourselves. So if this kind of bizarre story from Judges 3 
prompts us to repent this morning, just in, in ways big and small, it's worth our while because it leads to freedom, which in turn leads to a posture that is genuine, true, and humble of readiness and willingness. If we find ourselves telling God that we're ready and he keeps telling us, not yet. We should make sure we look at ourselves and say, are we marked by freedom? Are we marked by repentance? So we're going to take a moment to do that. We're going to just stop and be silent, go before the Lord, and let's confess our sins together. And I encourage you, like, to name it specifically before the Lord. Like, I know how ugly sin can be, right? But, like, God is safe. He can handle, right, your sin. Name it before him. And then let's pray towards repentance together. Let's run from sin towards repentance, towards freedom, and towards a readiness and willingness.